Hey, it's John Ingle, and I'm excited to share that registration is now live for Grid Tech Connect Forum California. Join us in Newport Beach June 24th through the 26th for the interconnection event. We're bringing together utilities, developers, regulators, and advocates to take on one of the biggest challenges facing the energy transition, both at the DG and utility scale levels. Click the link in the episode description and use promo code PODCAST to save 10% on admission. Join our partners from the Department of Energy, NREL, Southern California Edison, PG&E, Kaiso, Sunrun, NG, Convergent, AES, and so many more for this impactful event. We'll see you there. I'm in our headquarters uh, this week actually trying to address this issue. You know, do we put more investment into the U.S. or is there better investments in other parts of the world because we don't have to deal with the political risk? When you think about political risk, developing countries and emerging markets probably come to mind, where instability threatens social and market institutions. That's where the U.S. has always had a leg up. The business community craves the security, consistency, and incentives that mitigate risk and propel profits. The same goes for solar energy developers. These projects take years and millions of dollars to come together, so certainty is pretty important. But political risk is now directly tied to the U.S., at least in the eyes of a global solar developer, in part due to the Oxen Solar Tariff Petition. So much so that LightSource BP Americas is determining whether its investments are more suited for other markets. My conversation with LightSource BP Americas CEO Kevin Smith is next on Factor This. And later, I'm talking to CEOs today that are making decisions that, well, we were going to retire a coal-fired power plant, or we were going to power down our natural gas and use solar. But because of this decision, we're now not in a position where we're able to do that. American Clean Power Association CEO Heather Zeichel on the solar industry's $5 million campaign against the Oxen Solar Petition and how the former Obama White House staffer is working to rewrite American trade policy to prevent a standoff like this from ever happening again. PowerGen International is taking place in Dallas, Texas from May 23rd through the 25th. It's the largest network and business hub for electricity generators and solution providers engaged in power generation. Make sure you register to join thousands of your peers as the industry comes together to learn, network, and connect with solutions-driven suppliers on a sold-out show floor. Visit PowerGen.com for more information. I'm John Ingle from Renewable Energy World. You're listening to Factor This, a podcast designed specifically for solar industry leaders. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do. It's a huge help as we're getting this podcast off the ground. This podcast is the second in a four-part series on the Oxen Solar Tariff Petition. If you haven't listened to Episode 1 and our exclusive interview with Oxen Solar CEO Mamoun Rashid, I would definitely start there. It's the company's first extensive interview since filing the petition and answers some major questions about their motives. But this episode brings you a totally different perspective. That's the goal of the Factor This podcast. And that brings us to Kevin Smith, CEO of LightSource BP Americas. LightSource BP is a 50-50 venture between solar developer LightSource and oil major BP, which is now one of the largest solar developers in the world. So the company has a lot of choices when it comes to investing in solar projects. And Smith says the case for the U.S. is getting a whole lot more complicated with the possibility of additional tariffs on imported modules. For an inside look at how a global developer is weighing the impact of solar's most divisive issue, here's Kevin Smith. 
My name is Kevin Smith. I'm CEO of the Americas for LightSource BP, and I head up uh, our utility-scale solar development activities in in the U.S. and Latin America. Kevin, your experience goes back 30 years before joining LightSource BP. Tell us what you were doing. I took over the U.S. and Latin American activities just around uh, three and a half years ago here for LightSource BP. So I've been in the energy industry for more than 30 years. Uh, we won't say how much more than 30 years. but um, uh, And I started out in engineering uh, at Purdue University um, and you know went right into a, an architectural engineering firm in Chicago, Sergeant Lundy, and was working on power plants kind of right out of the box, right out of college. So nuclear, uh, conventional energy. It was well before renewable energy. So kind of the first, usually I say the first half of my career was conventional energy, oil-fired, natural gas, nuclear. And then in 2004, I moved into renewables, headed up development for a, a group called Invenergy out of Chicago. On the wind side um, was when they they were just just starting to look at the wind industry. And so that's pretty much when I transitioned from, I'll say, conventional energy to to renewables, uh, moved into solar in 2008 and uh, have been in, in solar since then. So I pretty much built just about any kind of uh, um, uh, power project you can think of, you know, wind, solar, natural gas, oil, you know, bark, nuclear, um, I haven't done any hydro is and geothermal is about the only thing I haven't done. So then share with us what it's like as a leader in solar, especially utility scale solar, going through the various rounds of tariffs and trade issues from the Obama administration to the Trump administration, now the Biden administration. What's that like on your end? I mean, I remember when Carter put solar modules on the White House and Reagan took them off. So um, which is which I'll, I'll say is a bit of a, a of a you know, the story of our policy on on renewable energy and solar for that matter. So the vast majority of the technology was was invented here in the U.S. And the PV uh, solar industry was kind of coming of age in the early 2000s through mid 2000s. Prices were very high. Prices started to eat down a bit, but still were, were very high compared to conventional energy. Um, U.S. was doing manufacturing, but it wasn't a massive industry. Really, what changed the whole industry was the Chinese decided, hey, we think this is the wave of the future. And the Chinese started to support. This was back in, you know, probably 2007, 8, 9, 10, started to massively support industries in China that could manufacture uh, PV modules. That, number one, brought pricing way down so that solar started to become more competitive in that kind of post 2012 2014 time frame and they started to capture kind of most of the solar PV manufacturing activities what was disappointing is that the US government kind of watched it happen you know even though in 2012 when the first uh, I'll say 301 tariffs the high tariffs that still exist today on Chinese modules came into into place Obama was was as President Obama was in charge, um, we just couldn't muster enough support to really um, keep U.S. manufacturing at the forefront of that. We could have. Um, we had the example that that what what China was doing, um, and you know we were too much looking at free markets and and. Uh, um, 
you know, thought that markets would rule. And, you know, if the Chinese want to manufacture a cheaper PV module, then great, we'll buy it. And and that's really put us in fast forward kind of a decade of, of more of the same. You know, Asian manufacturers, not just China, but Southeast Asia has identified this market as a huge growth market. I mean, it's a trillion dollar industry, the solar solar markets, uh, you know, headed for a trillion dollar industry. And, you know, Chinese and the, and the um, Southeast Asian uh, economies recognize that this was a huge opportunity. Um, and they're doing it in other things as well. I mean, wind, battery uh, production, et cetera, et cetera. And we're still kind of watching in amazement that as manufacturing kind of goes these uh, these other markets. And we could put in place various types of structures that could keep manufacturing and incentivize manufacturing. Tariffs isn't the way to do it. Uh, you know, tariffs historically really haven't worked very well, not in, not just in solar, but in all kinds of industries. Um, you need to incentivize investment into the U.S. Uh, manufacturing activities. So you were talking about this period where the U.S. basically fell asleep, knew what China was doing when it came to solar manufacturing manufacturing and and just accepted it at least for a number of years you know beginning around 2009 2010 does that kind of line up with the the same time the clean energy advocates identify around 2012 being the point where the Obama administration and a democratic congress really missed on passing meaningful clean energy legislation we hear it brought up a lot um, during these conversations about build back better in the current um, administration and congress i would put it well before obama i mean the you know in the Bush administration, they put in place um, the Department of Energy Loan Guarantee Program, but they never utilized it. Okay, so that program was put in place under Bush, but you know, none of it, hardly any of it was used. At least Obama saw that program and said, let's utilize that program to at least incentivize uh, construction of of utility scale facilities in the U.S. And that did a lot to at least accelerate the solar industry in in the U.S., not necessarily manufacturing, but certainly accelerated the solar industry. So I think the Obama administration did a good job at kickstarting the renewable energy industry. Where they fell short was the focus on, on the manufacturing sector, um, you know, that really wasn't wasn't a priority for them or they couldn't garner enough support, you know, bipartisan support to get uh, manufacturing uh, uh, support done uh, in Congress. You know, solar industry took off under Obama, which was great, but manufacturing continued to languish. So when then did the U.S. solar industry just become addicted to those lower prices that were coming out of Asia? Really, it, it became, a, you know, the, the demand of the of the end users. So the buyers, you know, and and a lot of utilities go on on lease cost plans. So, you know, they have to buy, you know, the lease cost uh, electricity generation, regardless of the source. Um, for years and years. Now, there's been a lot of incentives put in place to encourage utilities to buy renewable energy. Now, it just so happens that renewable energy is is the cheapest form in a whole lot of places, in most places. Um, but it really was the kind of the U.S. economy is really set up on buying the cheapest source of, of goods. And whether that's U.S. made or, or Chinese made, I mean, look at all kinds of industries, you know, uh, clothing and, and semiconductors and, you know, shoes and all kinds of things that, you know, were really driven by bringing in low cost suppliers into the market. Um, I think the U.S. only in the semiconductor 
uh, uh, markets. I think the U.S. only is manufactures like 10 or 12 percent and 75 percent of it's coming from from China and, and Southeast Asia as well. Um, so it's not that dissimilar from the the solar panel markets. Um, it's just that this year, all of a sudden, the government decides overnight they want to change the market. So what's the immediate impact then to utility scale developers like yourself and LightSource BP? Um, the issue is really on projects that are starting construction or have started construction that are waiting, um, that have contracted modules that are not yet in the country. Um, the the petition and the evaluation that's being done by Commerce now, they would likely make it retroactive to April 1st of 2022. So it's really for projects that have have that are in construction right now and projects that we expect to see in the future. You know, I should note that that uh, LightSource BP, um, I'll say with a bit of foresight, um, not necessarily on this petition, but on just the general market, um, you know, we did a the, the largest uh, contract with a U.S. supplier for PV modules with for solar. So last um, uh, fall, we completed a uh, an agreement with First Solar to supply not only some of our 21 and 22 projects, which, which were already under contract, but our 23, 24, and 25. Total of all those deals was well in excess of 10 million uh, solar panels. Now, that doesn't supply all of our needs. And like I said, it was the biggest contract that First Solar had had ever done. Um, but we're still short on on what we what we want to do um, with our expansion plans in the U.S. Um, so we're in a bit better shape, I'll say, than probably the vast majority of the market because of that contract that we have with First Solar. But we're still in a position where we're going to we're, we're lowering our targets because of the, the lack of module supply. Um, I, I have you know, colleagues in the industry who, you know, for whatever reasons, didn't have the opportunity to buy first solar modules and first solar module first solar is is pretty much sold out um, into 2024 or so they they've told us. And so you have other potentially other developers that, you know, potentially 100 percent of their fleet is imported modules. Now, 100 percent of that fleet is now delayed for their future projects. Uh, so we're going to see a very big downturn in the U.S. market, potentially, you know, more than a 50 percent decrease in in projects being built and tens of thousands of jobs lost on the construction and operation side. Hey, Factor This listeners, it's John Ingle. I wanted to let you know that you can now watch every new episode of The Fact of This podcast on YouTube. Just search Renewable Energy World and leave a rating and review while you're there. Thanks for listening. So you mentioned that the decision to go with First Solar for some of the sourcing of, of light source BP projects came even before this Oxen Solar tariff petition. Take me behind the scenes in how you as a company came to the decision that you were going to source from an American supplier. Um, and, and when did that all come together? The first projects that we uh, built with with um, First Solar were, were actually back in 2020. Um, and, you know, we had a number of projects we were building. We wanted to to have a, a, a bit of a more diversified supply. Um, and, you know, we had had some difficulties with some of our Southeast Asian suppliers. So we thought we would utilize First Solar on a couple projects that we built in Texas back in 2020. And we had 
you know, good good luck with them or, or you know, good good uh, delivery by by First Solar on those projects. So we increased our supply and our contracting with them in, in 2021 for some projects we were building in 2021 and then really you know, approach them with a with a, with a much larger purchase option. Um, you know, that 5.4 gigawatt contract that was signed with them at the end of 2021, and it had to do with diversification of supply. It also had to do with the I'll say the growing expectation that um, you know we were seeing you know really kind of uh, you know kind of bipartisan views on on imports from China and Southeast Asia. You know, from buyers a, or from policymakers. Policymakers, really. And like I said, we had really good luck with our contracts with First Solar. It was much more enjoyable doing business with a with a, a company that was standing by its contracts, um, you know, more fervently than than maybe some of our other suppliers. Uh, so you know, we had good experience with them. We decided to 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 go much bigger with with First Solar. In retrospect, obviously, it was a very good decision by LightSource BP. Um, it was not an easy decision to make to put that much into a into a single supplier, but we felt comfortable in First Solar's capabilities to deliver. It's worked out well for us, but like I said, it still doesn't meet our needs going forward. Um, and, you know, with this petition, um, we've got projects that are now delayed. A 5.4 gigawatt order is a lot and a good chunk of the manufacturing capacity that we have for solar in the U.S. What kind of certainty does that give to a domestic manufacturer to ramp up? And, and how can utility scale developers provide that certainty? An order like that helps them, uh, you know, to keep their manufacturing activities in the U.S. Obviously, they import um, manufacturing from overseas as well. So a good portion of their uh, panel supply is manufactured overseas. They have manufacturing. I think their largest facilities in Ohio. They're looking at adding another facility in Ohio, but they've got to get to, I'll say, number one, critical mass on forward sales. And secondly, they really need, they're really looking for policy support as well. I mean, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to put, put words into their mouth, but from my view, tariffs help them create a U.S. market. Okay. But, but it doesn't help a, a U.S. supplier compete internationally by the U.S. government focusing on tariffs. We're kind of missing the bigger picture, which is we should be creating industries in the U.S. that can compete around the world. Like I said, solar markets are going to be shortly are going to be trillion dollar markets and we need manufacturers in the U.S. that can compete worldwide. You don't do that by protecting your own market. You do that by supporting manufacturing with tax credits and incentives to build manufacturing facilities in the U.S. that can compete in other parts of the world, not just sell to the domestic market. So I think that's the part that's missing is is really long-term incentives and, and tax credits for manufacturing to build manufacturing facilities in the U.S. And the difficulty with tariffs is they can be added, they can be taken off, they can be increased, they can be decreased. It doesn't really provide much long-term certainty um, for people to build a manufacturing facility that may take a decade to pay off. How, in your opinion, then, will we fill that gap between what the U.S. can produce in terms of solar modules and how long will it take? You know, to really ramp up manufacturing in the U.S. to, to fill that gap is is two to three years minimum. There are other suppliers that potentially can supply into the U.S. market. You know, we're looking at suppliers in Turkey and India and Mexico and others, but those 
in Turkey and India, for example, their their main focus is their domestic markets because um, they're trying to ramp up their own solar programs and they have limited manufacturing in their own countries. So we're trying to convince them to to sell some of their valuable production into the U.S. market. So I expect if they view the U.S. market as a long-term market, they'll start to ramp up some of their production. But there again, you know, we can get, we can see a trickle coming from some of these other countries, um, but it's going to be kind of a two, three-year ramp up before we'd see any kind of significant supply, either from non- Asian countries or from the U.S. market. If they go forward and impose additional onerous tariffs on on supply, then we're going to see a, a, a you know a lot of destruction in the solar industry over the next few years. What's been the hardest part of this tariff fight for you? Well, the I mean, one of the reasons why I joined LightSource BP, um, you know, was as you know, I mean, as strange as it sounds, you know, BP is a, is a large oil and gas company now moving to be an integrated energy company. Um, that funding that LightSource BP has was a big incentive for me to join. From my perspective, I wanted to make a bigger impact, build more projects, build larger projects, make a dent in in the climate change issues through my work and the work of our team at LightSource BP. So we're looking to make a big impact. Okay, now all of a sudden, you know, the U.S. government comes along and say, well, maybe we don't want that big of an impact. So, you know, I think what keeps our staff at night is we've got projects that we can deploy um, and can help create jobs, create community um, uh, support, um, you know, provide uh, low cost renewable energy into markets, address climate change issues, and all of a sudden policy issues are going to stunt that growth for really no good reason. If we want to maintain uh, the solar markets, then we, we need to move away from tariffs and look at incentivizing manufacturing. And we're huge supporters of incentivizing manufacturing because we think that's the way to go. Um, obviously, we're a big supporter of U.S. manufacturing because we, we, you know, we had for solar's largest order ever, but tariffs aren't going to solve that problem. And what it's going to do is it, it's going to, we're not going to build as much, you know, our targets are going to be lowered, which is really depressing that we've got projects we can deploy, but we're not going to be able to deploy them because of lack of module supply. How soon after all this started, was it obvious or apparent that projects were going to be delayed or some were going to be taken off the table altogether. You know, when the petition was was first petition was put in last fall by there was kind of five unnamed companies, you know, we made the arguments, the industry, you know, through the solar energy industry and the uh, American Clean Power, we made the arguments to commerce that this would have immediate effect, especially if you're going to evaluate and make tariffs retroactive. Okay, suppliers aren't going to take the risk of of 50 to 250% tariffs and owners slash developers can't take that risk either. You, know, you can't build a hundred megawatt, hundred million dollar project with a with fifty million dollars worth of uh, panel supply, and then six months or a year later they show up and say, "Oh, you owe us another hundred million for tariffs." Projects can't afford that. The contracting structure, lenders, investors, etc., can't can't take that kind of risk. Everything so, stops. Yeah, everything stops. So as soon as they announced they were going to do this evaluation and potentially make those and announce that they would be retroactive to, you know, at least 
as far back as April 1, 2022. On April 2nd, 2022, we got letters from our suppliers saying we can't ship unless you take 100% of the risk. And we said we can't take 100% of the risk either. We've got contracts with our with our off takers, uh, our power buyers um, that can't accommodate those kinds of price increases. So essentially, all of our all the imports into the U.S. pretty much stopped overnight. Well, and it's such a shock to the market too, right? When we saw solar going to communities and areas of the country that didn't seem possible before on um, this model that has worked for so long and, and made financial sense even more so in recent years is is no longer making sense or could not make sense in the near future. It's out of the money. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're, you know, I mean, we're building projects this year in Louisiana, Alabama, Arkansas, Indiana. You know, if you'd have said five years ago that we'd be building projects in Arkansas, I'd have said no way, kind of. Okay. But, you know, we can be very cost competitive. So, it, you know, these utilities, they don't have necessarily state requirements to build renewable energy or, or uh, you know, low carbon sources, but they look at the the cost and how it fits into their into their generation mix, and all of a sudden solar becomes a really viable option. There's a lot of opportunities that we're looking at in in markets that you wouldn't have expected uh, you'd see solar in, and now all of a sudden we've got to deal with, I'll say, from a U.S. standpoint, kind of self self inflicted mistake on uh, that'll stunt the markets at least until they make a decision on what they're going to do. Lastly, Kevin, how is LightSource BP approaching this issue strategically and charting its course? I'm based in San Francisco. Cisco, but I, I'm in our headquarters uh, this week, actually trying to address this issue. What do you do with investment money? You know, do we put more investment into the U.S. or is there better investments of other parts of the world because we don't have to deal with the political risk? So LightSource BP right now is considering whether the U.S. market still makes sense. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting, I, I, I mean, I spent six years with my family in London, actually, back in the late 90s and early 2000s, building power projects around the world. And when I you know, all kinds of places in in uh, Southern Africa and in Asia and in in Latin America. And when I came back and was speaking at a few conferences, they asked about political risk in those markets. And I said, you know, the areas where I've had the most political risk have actually been the U.S., um, you know, not, you know, uh, um, some of these developing markets in in Africa or Asia, uh, and once again, the U.S. is 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 delivered with political risk, and so that is that's going to decrease investment into the U.S. solar markets because of that political risk. You know, light sources at light source BP is active in 15, 16, 17 different countries as we continue to ramp up, and we're making investment decisions on where's the best place to direct our our investments, and you know. Things like, you know, political risk are a big deal and it will, you know, we'll end up investing you know, less money in the U.S. in 2022. We'll see what happens in 2023 than we originally had planned because of the kind of the U.S. government action. Kevin Smith, thanks for joining Factor This. OK, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks, John. Thanks again to Kevin Smith, LightSource BP America CEO. That was a unique look inside how a global solar developer is making some serious near-term decisions about its path forward in the U.S., and I didn't know that we were going to catch him in London for this interview as he was speaking to other company executives about that strategy. We'll see how it plays out.
Heather Zeichel is in a tricky spot. She's the CEO of the American Clean Power Association, a leading trade group for solar, wind, energy storage, and transmission companies, and she's fiercely condemned the Biden administration for the Commerce Department's investigation of the Oxen Solar Petition. But she's also a former Obama administration energy and climate official. She knows President Joe Biden well. Maybe no one in clean energy is closer to this White House. Zeichel joined Factor This to give us an inside look at the policy fight taking place behind the scenes at the highest reaches of our government. Well, Heather, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to to join me for this discussion because I know you're incredibly busy with this very issue. So if you can fill us in at all on on what you're actively working on, you and your team, as as we navigate this oxen solar petition. Well, um, obviously, it's great to join you, John. And as the CEO of the American Clean Power Association, you're absolutely right. We are spending a lot of um, time, resources and effort on this decision that the Department of Commerce has made on oxen solar's petition. We are in an enviable place of representing wind, solar storage and transmission. So obviously, this is one of many fights that um, that our trade association is working um, fearlessly on, but it is it can not be overstated. This is an existential threat to the future of solar in the United States of America. And the frustrating part from my perspective is when I look back at the history of these requests for investigations, it kind of comes time and time again. It's a handful of bad actors who figured out how to manipulate U.S. trade laws to work to their own financial benefit. And the kind of head-scratching moment for me is the fact that the decision makers at Commerce have already kind of asked and answered this question to a large degree. For a decade, we have known where a solar cell is manufactured. And the point, and that's at the point at which the silicon is transformed into a solar cell that can capture the sun's energy and turn that into electricity. So the companies are now engaged in that type of manufacturing in Southeast Asia and are circumventing the existing order on, on Chinese solar cells. So from my perspective, it's very frustrating to watch this administration who talks a very good game on the need to deploy clean energy solutions, on the benefits of creating new jobs, on the climate benefits of zero carbon energy sources. At the same time, just the actual initiation of this review has led to a immediate chilling impact on this U.S. solar industry. Yeah, and I've, I've talked to many of those developers who are feeling the, the brunt of that right now, and I empathize with them. I, I do want to touch on the mechanism and the procedural aspect of this commerce investigation. I get that it's such a deeply emotional topic because of the impact on the, on the industry and on climate goals and all of these things that are important to us. Oxen's filing of the petition, though, in meeting the requirements, triggers a review by commerce, does it not? That is that is federally required, given how our trade laws are set up. It's not a subjective process, right? Well, I mean, listen, I think that there is I think there's a long exit. I mean, the, the, the underlying statutes from the 1930s, right? So like, this is not we're not dealing with a new kind of authority at the Department of Commerce. I think what is unique in this case is, as I said earlier, this question sort of this question has been asked and answered by the department previously. And then I think to, to the second point, you can't look at this and say, oh, well, this is just an investigation. In fact, this is leading to thousands and thousands of jobs 
jobs and delayed projects left and right. You talked about the implication for corporate clients, very real, very important piece of the puzzle. But there are other kind of pieces of this puzzle that aren't as obvious. For example, I'm talking to CEOs today that are making decisions that, well, we were going to retire a coal-fired power plant, or we were going to power down our natural gas and use solar as the replacement electrons. But because of this decision, we're now not in a position where we're able to do that. So we're actually driving more decisions that are holding on to fossil assets, which is directionally not where we want to be going. And then there's the unintended consequences, right? So we talk a lot about the implications for solar, the fact that 24 gigawatts of projects are at risk of cancellation or delay across 2022 and 2023. But what we also have to remember is half of those projects are directly linked to storage, which is a technology that we really, really need for clean energy, for resilient grid, for you know jobs. You name the benefit, it's there. So it's not just knocking out jobs in the solar sector. We're also actually seeing jobs being knocked out in storage as well. So I think we need to be really clear-eyed about the diversity of challenges that we are that the administration has created by saying, look, we need to go forward with this investigation. Should the anger, though, be directed toward our policymakers that that didn't take action sooner? I know that you're supportive of, of incentives for domestic manufacturing and have spoke on that several times. But we knew that this trend was occurring in the market of solar module production for, you know, the better part of the last decade. Um, so are we frustrated that an oxen solar can use the system to result in an investigation like this? Or is the bigger picture issue here that we didn't address the supply chain inadequacies that we've had and known about for some time now? Well, I mean, frustrated is one word. I might be a little more aggressive because we're talking about 38,000 American jobs lost, over $30 billion of lost economic investment. And I don't even want to talk about the climate implications, right? So frustrated is me on a good day. Um, I would say it's, it's just like a gut punch coming from this administration, especially because, I mean, I've worked with the president. I know the president. I know he cares about these issues. And, you know, the, the fact that this decision has been made and there's not an off ramp or an easy fix. And unfortunately, this decision is just going to lead to, you know, a lot of pain for a lot of American families at a point in time when we should be looking at every single energy source we can, especially when you have a sources of, as affordable and reliable as solar. On your question about the broader process at, at, at the Commerce Department, as an industry, we are part of a global supply chain. We got here for a reason, right? It, China decided a decade ago that they wanted to, the, the future was solar. They wanted to own the manufacturing capacity. So they had a very, very well-defined plan that said, look, we're going to own this supply chain. We're going to invest in it. We're going to subsidize it. And then ultimately dumped a lot of over-subsidized panels on the global market in order to own this part of the market. In the United States, we not only fail to have a manufacturing policy, we fail to have an, an economy-wide climate policy. You can't just point to the fact like, oh, shucks, it's too bad these guys in the solar industry didn't realize and think through their global supply chain. The supply chain exists for a reason. People go where there's certainty and predictability. You look at the U.S. market over the last decade, I mean, like, rewind to the last administration, 
not a lot you know, not a lot of clarity there. You go back further. I mean, we're, we were still as an industry trying to deal with solar integration on the grid and deal with the technology and deal with the cost curve. So now we're this mature industry and we look back and a lot of people are looking at us saying, well, why didn't, why weren't you more mindful of your global supply chain? I mean, I could ask the same thing of about I don't know, 80% of the products yeah. that on a daily basis. Well, and, and that was my question is not an indictment on, on the sort on the people trying to source the panels, because I speak to those developers who say, I would love to buy more domestic modules. They don't exist. And right. so, exactly. so my point, my point more is that it, it's strange to me that there's not more anger toward the people who write our laws and can establish these incentives and marketplaces and could have years ago, you worked on this stuff in the Obama White House. You know, you know how this works. That seems to be the, the, the real crux here that isn't making it into the messaging. Am I wrong? No, no, no. I think you're I think you're 100 percent spot on, John. I think we today are now having that enlightened discussion about what does this just transition look like? How do we make sure that we're bringing, you know, those left behind in this energy transition? We're creating new opportunities for them. That's a really important part of the equation that just candidly hadn't been part of previous discussions. I think it's spot on. And that's also why as an industry, we have been so forward leaning when it comes to supporting reconciliation packages and climate packages that include language like the Ossoff bill that provides manufacturing credits so that we can have a level playing field with these manufacturing credits to build out more and more of the supply chain for clean energy domestically. And and obviously, that's something near and dear to President Biden's heart as well. Yeah. So this must be kind of a tricky position for you because you're obviously an advocate now for the industry, but you also do have ties to this administration, this White House. You know the president. You know the people working on climate policy. If anyone is close to this White House, it's you. So what conversations are happening? Are you at all frustrated given that you have well-established relationships with this administration to see it playing out the way it is? Let me start by saying the decision that was made by this administration was incredibly disappointing. Um, it was disappointing for climate advocates. It was disappointing for, um, uh, you know, clean energy CEOs around the country. And it's disappointing for the men and women that have been laid off and or furloughed because of, you know, as a result of these decisions. So that's thing one. In terms of, I mean, I'm not in a position to divulge conversations that we're having with the administration. I will say a couple of things. One, I am very confident that this is on the radar of the of the highest levels of government, exactly where it needs to be and should be. Um, and two, as an industry, we have united together in a way that we have never as an industry done before. We've raised over $5 million. We are focused on a well-funded campaign to affect the outcome, you know, and that includes ads, polling, all the typical things you would expect an industry whose back is against the wall to do. Um, but this is, this is the first time that We've, you know, it certainly I've been working to deploy solar for, for two decades, and I never thought that I'd be having to raise money to run a campaign against the Biden administration. So it's a strange because, world we're in. <laughs> it is a strange world we're in, but it's the right thing to do. 
where I am confident that we are going to make the case to this administration because they're going to see projects across the country where you've got steel in the ground with no panels, where workers have been laid off. And at the end of the day, that is what is going to drive this administration to make the right decision. And we are going to make sure that this administration feels the heat because it's the right thing to do. So how do we then be even beyond the the political campaign? How do we get all of these parties to the table to say this is a cataclysmic event for our industry, which I think all parties will agree it is, regardless of which corner of the issue you're coming from. So there, there has to be some kind of a, a meeting in the middle or assembly of of these different positions to say we all want to fight climate change. And how do we do it while supporting domestic manufacturing, while also supporting rapid deployment of technology? How do we get all these people together to say that the commerce investigation and tariffs aren't the way because we know the tariffs do not work to stabilize a domestic market? Again, violent agreement. Tariffs are not the solution to this challenge. It's the it's the manufacturing credits that we um, that we talked about a bit ago. I mean, look, sometimes the hardest thing in Washington is, is figuring out how to get people in the room. And it always takes 10 times longer than you think it will take. And this is this is particularly complex because, you know, you've got a lot of people on the Hill that have very strong opinions about this. You have a number of different agencies within the White House. Right. So there's obviously the Commerce Department. But because President Biden did create this all of government approach around climate, you have you know people like. John Kerry and Gina McCarthy, who care deeply about preserving the president's legacy on climate. I mean, it's one of four top big priority goals for the president. So and and they're the people in charge of delivering, putting points on the board. Um, And then you have the governors. Right. So I've even heard from um, and spoken with the California ISO, which is worried about potential rolling blackouts as a result of this. So there's a lot of parties. And I think it's going to take some time to kind of figure out collectively what does success look like, especially, you know, the more people, the more complicated it gets. Um, At the same time, I think the administration is very motivated to find a workable solution. Um, I think that uh, you heard even today, Secretary Raimondo was testifying on the budget uh, in the Senate today, and, and Senator Rosen asked some really terrific and very pointed questions of Secretary Raimondo about the implications of this, particularly in a state like Arizona, where there are so many jobs directly linked to solar. Um, And what we heard from Secretary Raimondo was, listen, I understand that certainty and predictability are key, which is why we are trying to move as quickly as possible to make a decision. So I think we got to keep the pressure on the Commerce Department to make sure that they're, to the extent their process is going ongoing, that it's you know, moving in a timely manner that it doesn't get delayed, it doesn't get sidetracked. So there's the kind of like, okay, so the conveyor belt has started this process. Let's let's push on it and make sure it goes as quickly as humanly possible. And at the same time, let's think outside the box and try to, you know, find advocates across the administration that might be willing to be thought partners in what are some ways that we can think differently about tariffs? Because candidly, my fear is if oxen goes away, somebody else can file another petition two weeks down the road, right? So we also need to think about a long-term decision here so we don't have copycat cases. And as an industry, we cannot continue to be stuck in this do loop because the rest of the world wants access to solar panels. 
it's really like if you know if if you're an OEM, you're like, okay, if you don't want them, we're happy to go sell them elsewhere. And there's plenty of places, especially you know when you're seeing um, the EU and, and Germany make the decisions about doubling down on solar as a result of you know situation in Ukraine. I want to make sure we're protecting our ability to have market share in in the U.S. And that doesn't happen without the certainty and predictability. So we're going to stay focused on thinking outside the box about creative solutions and in the interim, really pushing on on the Commerce Department um, to move in an expedited manner and quickly reach a decision upholding Commerce's longstanding precedent and to just basically stop this fundamentally flawed case from continuing any further. Heather Zykel, thank you. You're welcome. Great to speak with you, Jen. Next time on Factor This. Roan Resch was the head of the Solar Energy Industries Association from 2004 to 2016. He shares his reaction to the trade dispute and his biggest regret from his time leading the solar trade group. Plus, what will it take to get U.S. solar module manufacturing capacity from 8 gigawatts per year to the 25 gigawatt development target the Biden administration wants to achieve? We'll hear from Martin Pochteruk, the CEO of North American solar module manufacturer Hellion, on the critical moment. All that on the next Factor This. I'm John Engel. You can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter. Factor This is a production of Clarion Events and Renewable Energy World. Please subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts and leave a review. We're excited to see what you think. Show notes, episode transcripts, source materials, and video interviews from Factor This are available at RenewableEnergyWorld.com. We'll see you next time. Hey, it's John Ingle, and I'm excited to share that registration is now live for Grid Tech Connect Forum California. Join us in Newport Beach June 24th through the 26th for the interconnection event. We're bringing together utilities, developers, regulators, and advocates to take on one of the biggest challenges facing the energy transition, both at the DG and utility scale levels. Click the link in the episode description and use promo code PODCAST to save 10% on admission. Join our partners from the Department of Energy, NREL, Southern California Edison, PG&E, Kaiso, Sunrun, NG, Convergent, AES, and so many more for this impactful event. We'll see you there.